Hello again, I'm back. <laughs> if we could turn our Bibles to Psalm 146. Psalm 146. <clears throat> now, for those of you that don't have uh, a physical Bible with you and would like to look on, uh, there should be a pew Bible that's in front of you, and it should be on page 525, Psalm 146. Now, this summer, we're going through a sermon series in the book of Psalms, <clears throat> and as we get to today's psalm, we come, uh, we come to a first in a series of five so-called hallelujah psalms that close out uh, the book of Psalms. Now, they're called hallelujah psalms because each of these psalms, leading to the very end in Psalm 150, uh, begins and ends with the word Hallelujah or the way it's translated in our English language, praise the Lord. And what commentators would tell you is that the book of Psalm is meant to be uh, taken as a whole, uh, supposed to give us a picture of the human condition in every stage and in every shape and in every condition. And so what these commentators would tell us is that as we move from Psalm 1 and get towards the end of the psalm, we would have gone through the ups and downs, we would have uh, woven in and out of sadness, of happiness, of defeat, of victory, of depression, of jubilation. And what they would tell us is that as we get towards the end of the psalm and as we get to these hallelujah psalms, what it's telling us is that every life that is lived before God honestly ultimately culminates in praise. No matter what it is that you are going through in your life, if you belong to God, if you, call, if you have the privilege of calling Him your Father, you have the privilege of knowing that whatever it is that you may be going through, at the end of it all, all of your life, all of the circumstances, all of your experiences will culminate in a thunderous hallelujah. And so this command to praise is littered throughout these five psalms. But not only do we get these, uh, these, this command in these last uh, five psalms, but we see that all throughout the Bible, there are commands uh, to praise God. Now, isn't it funny, though? If you were to kind of take a step back <clears throat> and to take a more kind of uh, less biased look at the Bible and this command... Uh, isn't it funny that we're commanded to praise? Because here's the question, what if I don't feel like it? You know, I've just given you the promise of God that tells you that if you belong to God, your life will culminate in shouts of praise. But what if you're saying, well, I mean, that's all fine and dandy at the end of my life, but right here in the here and now, I don't feel like praising God. I don't feel like worshiping. So what am I supposed to do with that? How are you supposed to give me a command that is, seems like it's impossible for me to keep? What if my life is so broken right now that I can't find anything to worship God about? 
I can't find anything to praise God about. Or you may be in a season of your life where you're looking at the world around you and what's going on in the world or in your workplace and in the relationships that you see in others, and you're saying, man, there's so much brokenness out in the world that it feels hollow for me to come on a Sunday like this and sing hallelujah to God. How can I praise God when there's so much brokenness all around me? How can I get in the state of jubilation when there's so much brokenness around me. <clears throat> and friends, if you and I are being honest with ourselves, um, we would have to admit that we find ourselves in that place more than we're willing to admit. And so because this is where we find ourselves quite often, here's how we respond to calls of praise and worship. When we come on a Sunday like this and we we're supposed to sing songs, praising God and worshiping Him. Here's what we do. We either disengage in worship. We may come and we may sing, yes, and, uh, but we're mostly here to listen to God's Word. We, we're mostly here to uh, listen to the teaching because what I really need right now is for me to get some pointers on how to get my life back together. What I'm really looking for is, to pre- is for the preacher to say something that I can do to go and fix the world that is broken around me. So we either disengage in worship, we kind of tune out the, uh, what I would call the aesthetic parts of worship, like singing and the, that sort of a thing. Or if you don't do that, we come on Sundays like this and we see worship as an escape from the brokenness of the world. And for many of us, we think of coming to worship or even entering into Christian community as leaving behind our everyday, quote-unquote, secular lives with all of its messiness, with all of its brokenness, and we see worship almost as entering into an alternate reality where we don't have to worry about all of the brokenness in the world. And so we say, we're going to come into this space where I don't have to worry about all of the injustices and all of the insecurities that I deal with, all of the strained relationships that are all around me. I just want to come and feel good. And so I'll come here as a form of escape for maybe a little over an hour before I need to get back to real life. We see worship as being no different, perhaps, than binging a bunch of Netflix shows to get our mind off of things, if you know what I mean. And many people outside of the Christian faith, many people outside of organized religion as a whole, uh, think religion is just that, escapism. They would say, you can't face the reality of a broken world, so you go to a make-believe God to make yourself feel better. But here's what one author has to say about worship, if you can get the first quote on the screen. Here's what he says. He says, waking up is the dangerous act of worship. It's dangerous because worship is meant to produce lives fully attentive to reality as God sees it, and that's more than most of us want to deal with. Yes, true worship always questions the dominant paradigms, even those within the church. See, what he's saying is worship is not an escape from reality, but it's a re-examination of your reality under the gaze of the one who created it. 
Worship is bringing reality as it is and having God reinterpret that reality to you from the perspective of a God who created all of it. And so, with all of this being said, in our passage this morning, we're going to see how worship drives us not to escape from reality, but how it drives us to face our reality with all of its messiness and how it moves us to action, how it gives us the power to take the broken pieces that we see in our reality and to piece it all together, okay? And so let me read this passage for you, Psalm 146. It says, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless, but the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, praise the Lord. Amen. Now let me get, uh, let me, let's just dive right into the text after a lengthy introduction. <clears throat> so the question is, how does this psalm, how does worship uh, 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 drive us to face our brokenness, and how does it drive us then to action to bring healing to the brokenness that we see in the world in three ways? First, worship shows us uh, who God is. And worship shows us, secondly, what God does. And lastly, we'll take a look at how we can be changed by it. How does worship lead us to face reality and do something about it? By showing us who God is, by showing us what God does. And lastly, we'll take a look at how we can be changed um, by this worship of God. So first, we find that worship shows us who God is. Now, if you were to take, the, uh, take a look at the middle of the psalm here, in verse 5. Uh, God here is introduced as the object of praise and worship, but notice how he is introduced here. If you look before in verses 3 to 4, the psalmist says, look, I don't want you to put your trust in princes, those who are noble, right, those who are of, of nobility, those who are supposed to be in authority over you, those who are supposed to be the so-called experts. Why? Because you can't find salvation in them. They're merely men, human beings. And it says, when his breath departs and he returns to the earth, the psalmist says, on that very day, his plans perish. You're not making any systemic changes to the world. You're not reintroducing a new agenda when you're six feet under, he's saying. From dust they came, and to dust they will return, the psalmist says. 
But in contrast to that, what does he say in verses 5 and 6? He says, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them. The psalmist is saying, do you see how different God is from any expert that you can talk to, any authority in the field? He may be saying to you right now, he's saying, do you see the breathtaking photos from the Webb telescope? You guys know what I'm talking about? It is breathtaking to see parts of our universe that we never got to see before. These thousands and thousands of galaxies. And what the psalmist would say is he made all of those things. Psalm 8 tells us that these stars, these planets, galaxies, work of his fingers. Right, the psalmist is marveling at the immense power and authority and the strength of God. And at the end of the psalm, what does he say? The Lord will reign forever, your God, O Zion, to all generations. He's saying, don't you see that you don't need to turn to human authorities because you are sitting the, under the authority of a God who created all of these things. So don't put your trust in people, put your trust in God. So that's what the psalmist says, put your hope in this God, who is all-powerful. But what does he say right after that? After making this grand claim about a God who created the heavens and the earth, verse 7, he says, he is a God who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. Now, here's a God whose power spans across the universes. And the psalmist says, and yet his gaze is fixed on those who are oppressed. His gaze is fixed on those who are hungry. His gaze is fixed on those who are hurting. That's how God introduces himself. And this isn't the only place where God is introduced in this way. If you look at Deuteronomy chapter 10, here's where God is introduced and it says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God. Here's this awesome God. But right after that, he says, He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner giving him food and clothing. Over and over again in the Bible, this is how God loves to make himself known. The almighty God, the all-powerful, who holds the universe and sustains it with the word of his power, who loves to get down into the dirt and to enter into the messiness of his people and loves bringing healing in their midst. Now, if this is how God chooses to be known, here's what this means for us, specifically in our worship of this God. First, it means that when we come to worship God, the brokenness that we see in ourselves Right, whatever pain that you may be experiencing right now, whatever burden that you are carrying in with you, that means if you are to worship rightly, and that means you would never, 
ever leave that behind when you enter in through these doors to come worship. To worship rightly is to bring your burdens before God, is to bring your suffering before God, is to bring your pain before God. Why? Because whatever brokenness that you are experiencing, you would know that that's the stuff that God cares about. That's the stuff that He wants from you. So to put it another way, though, put it in a negative way, to leave all of the brokenness and messiness behind, and and, and the moment you enter in through those doors and say, I'm going to put on a good face, Put up my Sunday best, I'm going to be with other upstanding Christians, so I'm going to speak in a very Christianly way, and I'm talk about how good God is, and you know, the, the moment you come in all made up like that, you would know, you should know, that you're leaving behind all of the stuff that God actually cares about. Here's what I mean. Right worship affirms and upholds all of the brokenness that you see in the world and calls you to bring them before a God who cares. That's what worship's supposed to do. It's not supposed to allow you to escape from your broken reality and to experience a God who is somehow removed from all of it, clothed in all white with a white beard up in the clouds, smiling down at you with this hallmark smile. But right worship calls you to enter into a deeper experience of a reality that already is honestly before a God who cares deeply about that reality, more than you could ever know. That's what right worship is. And so let me just quickly say before um, we move to the next thing, if you're experiencing suffering right now, if you're going through a difficult time in life, it may be entirely possible that you are closer to the heart of God than those who are living an easy life. Because suffering is what allows us to experience worship in a way that highlights God's priority for those who are broken, for those who are suffering. That's why Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Blessed are those who mourn. He doesn't say blessed are the middle class in spirit. Blessed are those who are doing okay. So right worship brings your burdens to God. But secondly, if you worship God for who he is, and if you were to have the kind of experience of God in worship that is authentic to who God is, then you can't, in worship, have your eyes drawn to God And immediately not have your eyes drawn right back towards those who are hurting in your midst. Those who are suffering in your midst. Those who are experiencing difficulty. Why? Because the God of the universe that you are worshiping has his sights set squarely on them. Now we'll talk more about this in a moment. But this is the point. When you come to worship and you experience God, it is impossible for you to grow in your knowledge and experience of God without having your compassion towards others grow at the same time. 
That's why when, when, when folks ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Jesus says to love the Lord your God with all that you have. And he doesn't say, coming right behind that of secondary importance is loving your neighbor. No, he says the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Because you can't worship a God rightly without loving the things that he loves, as we'll see in a moment. You can't grow in your knowledge and appreciation of God without your capacity for compassion growing at the same time. They go hand in hand. So you can't worship God rightly and understand who he is without caring about those he cares about. It's central to who God is. And here's what worship does. It draws us closer to a God who cares about the brokenness of our world. So that's the first thing. Worship shows us reality as it is and moves us to act because it shows us who God is. But secondly, worship also shows us what God does. Now, we just saw that God identifies himself by his concern for those who are being oppressed, those who are bar- being marginalized, and those who are hurt. But worship also shows us what he does. And to sum up what he does, look at verse 7. It says again that he executes justice for the oppressed. Now, this coming first basically sums up all that he does that follows, and we'll take a look at those in a moment, but let's talk about this word justice. Well, justice, in a nutshell, is is setting things right, setting wrong things right. Now, the moment we, now, justice is a loaded word in our day, isn't it? Now, there are those of us that are in kind of the more religious circles that would hear those words, and perhaps in uh, more conservative circles, would look at that word and say, no, 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 no. Uh, when you look at the word justice in the Bible, he's talking about spiritual justice. And there are those of us, uh, others of us, that look at the word justice and say, what are you talking about? He literally lists these people groups. And so justice has to be material in nature, and we tend to fall on one end of the spectrum over the other. So what does a psalmist mean when he talks about God executing justice for the oppressed? Is he merely talking about spiritual justice, where God comes and sets us free spiritually and not so concerned about material things? Or is God primarily concerned about material justice, that we heal the brokenness in the world and You know, if the spiritual stuff comes afterward, that's great, but our primary concern should be of material justice. Uh, The psalmist does not make compromises. It's both and. God is concerned about justice in all of its permutations and all of its forms. It is both a spiritual and material. Let me walk through this for you in the way he does this, right? He says he executes justice for the oppressed. And of course, right, he is literally talking about fighting for those who are weighed down by evil individuals and systems, right? There is no way around it, but we know from the rest of Scripture's witness that God is also standing up and advocating for those who are experiencing a sense of helplessness in their lives, whatever form it may be. Where you say, I, I just feel like I'm in a rut and I can't help myself. I can't get out of it myself. And God is saying, I am here for you. 
It says He feeds those who are hungry. And of course, this means providing material needs for those who need them. But what we see in the ministry of Jesus, who calls Himself the bread of life, He is also referring to that longing of your soul that could not be quenched by anything on this earth that God looks at and says, I have come to fill that need for you. I will satisfy you in ways that bread never could. It also says, sets the prisoners free. And of course, as uncomfortable as this may uh, make us feel, right, it is talking about criminal justice reform because he is surely not talking about setting prisoners free that deserve to be there. But he is also talking about the kind of bondage that every single one of us experience. Are there patterns of sin in your life? Are there unhealthy habits that you've developed over time? Are there unhealthy self-talk that you developed over time? Where you are constantly looking down on yourself and saying, I am not good enough. And you can't break free. God is saying, I have come to set you free. Opening the eyes of the blind, of course, it is talking about caring, those individual, caring for those individuals with disabilities and with physical illnesses. But we also know from the ministry of Jesus who called himself the light of the world that he has come in your time of confusion to light the way forward for you. When you feel like there is nobody that is guiding you by the hand through life and you don't know what, you, don't, you can't make sense of Uh, the world around you, Jesus has come. And God is saying, I will guide you forward. Caring for the sojourner. Of course, it is talking about protecting immigrants and refugees in our midst and making sure that they're not being exploited. But it's also talking about the condition of our hearts, every single one of us that we experience, where we experience a sense of alienation, We say, you know, in this season of my life, why does life need to be so difficult? I feel like the world is against me. And I'm constantly having to adjust in a world that seems foreign to me. And God is saying, I am watching over you. See, God is in the business of caring for and healing all that is broken. Widow and the fatherless. Of course, it is talking about caring for single parents, caring for orphans, but it's also addressing the sense of abandonment that you and I experience, saying, I am here for you. I will be a father to you. See, God cares about all of this. Now, here's what this means for us. If there's a bent towards justice in the heart of God, And if he is constantly in the business of setting all that is wrong right in the world in all of its forms, then that means in our worship, in the way you and I worship, if there isn't a cry that is deep down in our hearts that is being expressed, a cry for a better me, a cry for a better world, then our worship is incomplete. Because again, God in our worship of him, desires to affirm and uphold our brokenness. And he is a God who says, there must be something that is done about it. 
our worship springs forth from a holy discontent that says, I am not happy with the way things are, and I'm going to cry out to God who is able to do something about it. It's an act of defiance before the way things are. That's what true worship is. But here's also what uh, worship does. It also teaches us to imitate God in his bent towards justice. Here's what theologian Greg Beale has to say. He says, what people revere, they resemble, either for ruin or for restoration. Now, if you're a child of the 80s or early 90s like myself, you know that your greatest sports idol was Michael Jordan. It was probably Michael Jordan or Wayne Gretzky, I'm not sure, but most likely Michael Jordan. Now, if you know anything about Michael Jordan, uh, far and above the greatest player of all time, uh, no discussion around that. Uh, If you know anything about Michael Jordan, you know he had this uh, ridiculous habit. Do you know this? He had this ridiculous habit of sticking out his tongue. And especially as the games got intense, he would do more and more of that. He would always have his tongue sticking out, and it was the most ridiculous thing ever. Right? Can you imagine being in an intense board meeting, and you're like looking at the notes, and you have your tongue sticking out? Can you imagine me worshiping God, and all of us in this intense moment of worship, and we all have our tongue sticking out? It is the most ridiculous picture ever. And if you look at pictures of Michael Jordan, if you were to remove yourself from the reverence that everybody has of Michael Jordan, it looks absolutely ridiculous. And yet, and yet, if you're a child of the 80s, you know that at one moment, at a point in, when, when you were playing basketball, basketball, you had your tongue sticking out. You just did. You might have had your parents come yell at you and say, you know, you're going to bite your tongue off when you do that. It wouldn't have phased you. You were sticking your tongue out as you're dribbling, shooting, getting blocked by taller kids, as was my experience. <laughs> Why, though? It is that reverence or adoration that leads us to imitate that person. And really, as the story goes, the reason why Michael Jordan started sticking his tongue out in the first place was that he himself was imitating his father, who was his role model. See, friends, works of justice, meeting the needs of others and setting what is right with the world in all of its forms, if that's at the heart of God, then you can't rightly worship God and experience the beauty that He is without you naturally beginning to imitate Him. It is effortless as breathing if you were to live a life of worship. See, that's why it's such a big deal in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament. There's an inseparable link between works of justice and worship. And perhaps the most famous example of this comes from Micah chapter 6, where it says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? How am I to worship? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings? Shall I come before him with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? No, no, it says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. 
See, if we know this to be true, then our works of justice, of caring for the poor, caring for the marginalized, sitting with those who are hurting right here in our communities, works of justice, and especially before the eyes of the watching world, it's not just something that we do so that at the end of it we can present the four spiritual laws to them. Works of justice is not just something that we do to gain a good reputation amongst our unbelieving neighbors so that when we present the gospel to them that they may be more open to it. It's not a means to an end. No, when we are engaged in acts of justice, what, here's what we are doing. We are making visible the invisible character of God. See, friends, that's why works of justice is not just a part of our witness to the world. It's the essence of our witness to the world. And that's why the Old Testament uses justice as a measure of our worship. And not how we are moved by the songs that we are singing. See, a real measure of our worship takes place outside of Sundays. How moved are we when we see injustice out in the world? Does our heart go out to them just as God's heart goes out to them? Or are we looking for ways to justify ourselves and turning a blind eye towards it? Is it our instinct to seek comfort at all costs? Or is it our instinct to move to action See, that's the real test of worship according to the Bible. Now, with that being said, before we move on into the last and final point, I have to confess to you, whenever I talk about justice, and especially as it relates to worship, there's always a kind of a, a pang in my heart. Because I have to direct those questions to myself, right? Do I have the kind of fire in my bones when I see injustice? Does my heart ache with compassion when I see those who are suffering? Am I compelled to act? And here's what's dangerous about being a teacher of the Bible. You know just enough to know all the right things, but it is entirely possible that you never act on them. Exhorting others to do something is, often creates a similar effect in you doing it yourself, if I'm being honest with you. And so when I talk about these things, I have to confess it is far easier for me to talk about justice than it is to live a life of justice. And it is especially painful for me to admit this because as I have said, a life that lacks justice is not just a life that is missing a component or even a key component of discipleship. It's a life that is missing entirely the point of how God revealed himself to, in Scripture. And so the question that I'm asking is not, am I doing enough? The question that I have to ask is, do I know God? Am I worshiping a God that I made up in my head, or am I worshiping the God of the Bible? Because here's, uh, it's the same author, Mark Laberton, here's what he says about worship. If we can get that on the screen, it says, Worship names what matters most. The way human beings are created to reflect God's glory by embodying God's character in lives that seek righteousness and do justice. So as comprehensive worship redefines all we call ordinary, 
Worship turns out to be the dangerous act of waking up to God and to the purposes of God in the world and then living lives that actually show it. Living lives that actually show it. How pleased is God with my worship? It's a painful thing to think about, and I direct that question to myself and encourage you to think about it for yourself. And so how can we do this? Right? How can we be shaped? How can we be changed by this worship? Let's uh, see if we can quickly go through uh, this next point here <clears throat> because there is good news waiting for us. Now, we found that worship actually is a dangerous task, right? Because if you were to dare draw near to God, right, not just kind of saying, I'm going to feel good about it, but if you were to show up on Sunday and say, God, I actually want you to show up. Many of us show up to church not expecting God to show up. But if you were to come and say, God, would you show up as I actually worship you, as I see you for who you are, man, that's a dangerous thing. Because our worship does not happen in a vacuum. There is a kind of worship that pleases God, but there is a kind of worship that displeases God. And a worship that is displeasing to God is one that is not worshiping God at all. Again, going back to the Old Testament, here's what Amos 9 says. It says, I hate, this is God speaking, I hate, I despise your feasts, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them, and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Why? Because their lives did not reflect who God is, their worship was not worship of God who presents himself in Scripture as a God of justice. And that's why it goes on to say, but let, instead of all of this worship, God says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So how can we dare worship a God who is perfect in his justice when our lives don't reflect it? Here's the answer. If you look at Luke 4, in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we find him standing in the synagogue. And this was during the, the worship service for the Jewish people. And in that worship service, it was customary for a portion of Scripture to be read, oftentimes in the uh, book from the prophets. And so Jesus goes up, and he reads Isaiah chapter 61, where it says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He reads that. He sits back down. And when it's time for him to give a teaching on the text, he gives probably the most succinct, certainly the shortest, and most powerful sermon ever preached, perhaps. And he simply says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Now, the word fulfilled is a powerful word. It has connotations of uh, both completion and filling. And so the mental image that you're supposed to get is that of a, an incense that is burning in a room. After a while, the the, the pleasurable fragrance fills the room, and once it has filled the room, it has done its job. And so when Jesus says, the scripture is fulfilled today, he's saying, I am the perfect 
embodiment of God's glory because in me I have completely I am completely filled up by this character of his his almighty power that is laser focused on setting all things right and what we'll see in the rest of his life is that he embodied a life of justice holistic justice material justice spiritual justice And in a sense, we can call him the perfect worshiper because in the way that he lived, he reflected perfectly the heart of God back to him in experiencing all that he is. Now, you may say, okay, that's good for Jesus. What difference does that make in my life? Well, here's the good news of the gospel. And while in his life, in his life, Jesus embodied perfectly God's heart for justice. It was on the cross that he embodied in his flesh perfectly our burdens and our imperfect worship. See, when Jesus was on the cross, he bore our burdens and our sins upon him. In doing so, he was covering over our worship with his very own. And this is where we get the strength and the courage to worship freely and enter into the presence of God, not fearing his judgment and wrath, and rather being able to enjoy all that he is for us. Let me put it this way. One of the things that I am most uh, thankful for on our Sunday gatherings is our worship team. I'm so grateful for Ilya and the other excellent musicians that lead us in song because I tell you, if you were to have me up here, it would not be a pretty sight. But here's what happens every Sunday as we are led in singing by our excellent vocalists and and worship leaders. And oftentimes what I see happening is, and I try not to look back, but there are are people in, in your midst, right? I'm often sitting up front. I hear people behind me belting out wonderful noises, harmonizing, and I'm like, where is that coming from? And you know what that does for me? Man, it allows me to sing freely. You know why? Because I, don't, I know nobody's going to hear me. And so I can get lost in worship and praise. I feel free to lift my hands up. Why? Because I know that I'm being covered by a joyful, beautiful noise. Friends, when you and I dare enter into worship we come before a fearful god who is a consuming fire who looks upon the world and is grieved and is angered by the injustice in our world injustice that exists outside of us but injustice that exists inside of us but it was because of jesus who covers over us with his singing that we are freed to enter into the presence of God in worship, to experience all that he is for us. And friends, I'll tell you, worship, this kind of worship, is what is going to change the world. Why? Because as you enter into God's presence, as you experience his forgiveness for you, as you experience then, in turn, God's heart for the poor and the marginalized and for all that is broken in the world, here's what he's going to do to you effortlessly, without you even thinking about it, you'll begin to embody the heart of God. And that is what is go- you're going to take out with you as you exit out these doors today. 
See, worship is the answer to the brokenness of the world, can't you see? It is when God's people embody God's heart out into the world that the world is going to change. And that is my prayer for you, and that is God's heart for you. And so by the grace of God, in Jesus Christ, who covers over us with his worship, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, may we come, worship a God who changes us, and in turn, changes the world. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we come now with trembling hearts before you. God, certainly there are parts of us that feel uncomfortable in knowing that we don't embody lives of justice. And I certainly do, I know that I feel a lot more comfortable talking about justice than I am living a life that reflects it. And so God, we ask for your son Jesus and by your spirit to remind us that his worship covers over ours. And so by the freedom to worship that has been purchased by us in Christ, may we enter into your presence now. Would you change us by your beauty? Would you heal us by your love? And would you equip us by your power so that we may go out and change the world for your sake and for our joy. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now please stand as we sing before we move into the Lord's Supper.